Thanks, Matt. Hey, I want to um, give a shout out to John Petrie. Where is John this morning? Hey, John, stand up real quick. He um, graduated with his MBA. So can we give it up for John? It was a big accomplishment. John, we're excited for you and what God's going to do with that in the days, weeks, months to come. So we're believing with John for some good things. We're excited for him. Hey, I also want to say happy Mother's Day to all the moms. And I want to begin this morning by acknowledging, I know Alejandra did that, but I also want to say that we acknowledge this morning that this day could be a day of pain and difficulty for those of you who are, are women who may be estranged from your mother or child, uh, um, your own mother or child. Maybe you've lost a, a, a mom. Maybe your mother has passed on. Maybe your child. Maybe you've had a child that's passed on. Or maybe you're here this morning and you can't have children of your own. So today is a difficult day for you. So we acknowledge you. This church supports you, and we love you, and we're glad that you are, that you still chose to join us this morning, whether in person or online. So the rest of you are not moms, but you were all once children, and children like to be watched. If you know that to be true, raise your hand. You know, how many times have you had one of your children, moms, say, come up to you and say, look what I drew? You know, look, look, what, look what I can do. And um, they do all these crazy different things to get your attention. And you know deep down inside that they are pretty crazy. You know, the, the stick figures and the different things that are supposed to resemble something meaningful. But you still smile and you love it because you're a mom. Many of you have also been a mom who wonders if she has ever seen. Right? Because there comes a point as a mom where you begin to think that you're invisible. And you wonder if anyone even notices you. Christian author and speaker Nicole Johnson has put together a little sketch that I want to show you the first part of this morning called I'm Invisible. Let's take a watch. It started to happen gradually. I would walk into a room and say something, and no one would notice. I would say, turn the TV down, please, and nothing would happen. So I would get louder, turn the TV down, please. Finally, I would have to go over and turn the TV down myself. And then I started to notice it elsewhere. My husband and I had been at a party for about three hours, and I was ready to go. I looked over and he was talking to a friend from work and I walked over and he kept right on talking. He didn't even turn toward me. That's when I started to put it together. <laughs> he can't see me. <laughs> I'm invisible. I'm invisible. Then I started to notice it more and more. I would walk my son to school and his teacher would say, Jake, who's that with you? And my son would say, nobody. <laughs> Granted, he's just five, but nobody? How many of you moms have felt like that before? Invisible. If your kids don't know how their socks got back into the sock drawer, or how their lunches got made, there's a pretty good chance that you are an invisible woman. 
I want you to um, open in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 16. If you've got a piece of paper, a pen, or the notes app on your phone, I invite you to take notes this morning. We're going to look at a woman in Genesis 16 by the name of Hagar, and she felt pretty invisible and misunderstood. I've entitled my message this morning, The God Who Sees Me. The God Who Sees Me. Genesis 16, verse 1 says, Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beira Laharoi. It is there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And again, the name Ishmael means God hears. In this story, we meet a woman by the name of Hagar. She's an immigrant from Egypt and a slave to Abram's wife, Sarai. The child of Sarai gave Hagar to her 85-year-old husband, Abram, as a concubine. A concubine is also known as a secondary wife or kind of like a surrogate mother so that she could have her husband's child through her servant. As a slave to Sarai and a concubine of Abram's, Hagar didn't have any real sense of belonging. As a second wife in that culture, you, ha- you were at inferior status, lower than the actual wife. So she's trapped in this system where she feels like she is less than. She was a wife, but 
at an inferior status. It was very hard to be a nobody with no name, and she's referred to by Abram and Sarai many times as, we, as I read through that text. You could see my slave, this is my slave, or your slave, or even the Egyptian. Sarai and Abram probably did not really even think of Hagar as a person, but rather a means to an end. They probably didn't even notice that she had fled, that she had run away. It's apparent from our text and from the position that Hagar is in that she doesn't know what she wants for herself in life. She knows what she doesn't want. She doesn't want to be treated as a non-person, as an insignificant person. And she doesn't realize her greatest need until she meets the one who could fulfill that need. And she calls him Elroy, the God who sees. When I read that, I, I asked myself that question, and I posed this question to you this morning. What name would you give God if you had a chance to name him? Perhaps you would give him the name, the God who loves, or the God who provides, or even maybe the God of the second chance. Whatever name you choose would speak more about your need than it would speak about God's character because it is through your need that you experience God the deepest. Hagar, who felt insignificant, was actually a very significant person. She has the longest conversation with God in the entire Old Testament. And she's a woman. Up to this point, God gave himself names. He introduced himself to the children of Israel as Elohim, mighty creator. He introduced himself as Yahweh, the covenant maker. He even called himself El Shaddai, God Almighty. And these are vast. These are majestic. These are out there names of God. But Hagar needs more than just a vast, majestic, or out there God. She needs a God who is infinite and personal. And she meets that God, a God who came close. And Hagar declared, I've now seen the God who sees me. And that statement by Hagar is so important, and I want to spend the rest of our time together sharing with you why. What difference does it make in your life to know that there's a God who sees you? What difference does that make for you as a mom or as a woman, or as a father, or as a, a child, a young person, to know that there is a God who sees you. I remember vividly the first time in my life that I personally felt invisible, unseen, insignificant, misunderstood. It was when I was eight years old, and I was in the third grade. And at that young age, I was developing a strong concept of self. I often obsessed with how I felt on the inside and how I appeared to those on the outside. And as a result, I struggled with feelings of inadequacy. Not only did I struggle emotionally, but I also struggled academically. Third grade was a pivotal year. Third grade was the year that my mom got held back. So there was a fear there for me as well. It is a year that students move from learning to read to reading to learn. 
It's also a year that you're expected to know your foundational math skills like subtraction and addition and multiplication and division and, and word problems and fact families and so on. Researchers have said that third graders who lack proficiency in reading and math are four times more likely to drop out of high school. And I was struggling in both reading and math. Several times a week, I would have to stay after school to complete my homework. There were several parent-teacher meetings that took place over the school year. As I sat in the corner of the classroom and watched my mom and dad speak to my teacher about me. I remember sitting in my third grade classroom after the rest of the students had gone home for the day and feeling all alone. The days that I had to stay after school, which were many, caused me to miss out on having dinner with my father. My dad had worked second shift from 5 p.m. to 1 in the morning. Therefore, there were several days throughout the week that I barely got to see my dad at all or enjoy dinner with him. I desperately wanted to know that somebody knew what I was going through. Each day at school, I would watch my, my classmates succeed in their studies while I was sitting there struggling with my own. I even remember Dan Lundeen, one of my friends, drew Pinocchio. And it was awesome. It was beautiful. And I remember thinking, he's drawing Pinocchio, and I can't even understand my reading and my math. Other than attending Awana, a midweek children's program at my cousin's church, or occasionally going to church with my grandparents when I stayed at their home. I didn't know much about God or the Bible. My parents, although they were raised in a Christian family, weren't regular church attenders at the time. I knew, I didn't know that much about the Bible, but I, I kind of understood 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks on the outward appearance. I had realized that. I had realized as a child that when people looked at me, they often misjudged me. They often misunderstood me because they didn't really know what was going on in the inside of me. We all hate that feeling of being unseen and misunderstood, don't we? I wanted desperately for someone to believe in me and tell me that I was going to make it, that I was going to be all right. I didn't know the second half of the verse, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart because I didn't have a relationship with God at the time. And of course, God is actually the only person who can see the heart of a person. I somehow made it through third grade without being held back. And the following year, I learned of some boundary changes that had taken place and that I was going to have to go to a different school and begin my fourth grade year. And I was worried that fourth grade would be just a repeat of third. I was introduced to my fourth grade teacher, Ms. Hageman. And can I tell you, Ms. Hageman was awesome. She was an older teacher, an experienced teacher, and she had invested into my life. I remember learning my multiplication table and just um, excelling in both reading and math, and they became two of my favorite subjects because of her investment. Fast forward 18 years later, and I'm going through another pivotal time in my life. It was the year that our oldest son, Josh, was born. It was also the year that we moved into a house that was a foreclosure and needed a lot of work. 
It was also the year that the church where I served as an associate pastor was growing and in the midst of a building program. I was overwhelmed with all of the change and what needed to be accomplished in both the church and in our home. One afternoon, Lisa and I placed Josh in his baby stroller and we took a walk to the park just down the street from our new house. It was a day that we both needed to get outside and get some fresh air and clear our minds. And on the way to the park, I noticed as we passed this one house, there was a classic car sitting in the driveway and there was an older gentleman working on it. And his wife was over in the garden doing some weeding. And as we walked by, she looked up and our eyes connected and she said, Lance Rates? And I looked closer and I noticed it was my fourth grade teacher, Miss Hageman. I hadn't seen her for 18 years and she lived four doors down from our new house. We could have bought a house anywhere in the city, but we bought the one that was four doors down from Mrs. Hageman. I introduced her to Lisa and, and I let her hold Josh and she asked what I was doing now and I told her that I was an associate pastor at the local church and a big smile appeared across her face and she said, I always knew that God had something special for your life. There's a quote that says, you don't really understand human nature unless you know why a child on a merry-go-round waves at his parents every time around and why his parents always wave back. I walked away from that divine appointment that day with Miss Hageman smiling and in a sense waving, saying, I see you, God. I know that you still see me and you're there waiting for me. And I felt him smile back at me that day and say, I see you, Lance, and I'm waving. Keep going. Hang on. You're doing great. I'm delighted in you. We all need special moments like these where we are reaffirmed that God sees us. And I hope that this morning's message is one of those times where you are reaffirmed today that God sees you, that you are not invisible to him. What does it mean to be seen? Well, it means to be loved. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it completely. Friends, God envisages you into being and watches over you. He knows your every movement. He knows your every effort. Even before you say something, He knows what you're going to say. Just like the psalmist said. There's nothing about you that God doesn't already know. Not only are you fully known by God, you are deeply loved by Him too. Imagine having someone that knows everything about you and still unconditionally loves you. What an amazing truth. What does it mean to be seen? It means to be safe. Psalm chapter 121 verses 5 through 8 says, The Lord Himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. I'll never forget the day that we drove to Minneapolis. 
Minnesota, the University of Minnesota campus, and we got Josh settled in for his freshman year. And I remember, and I knew that day was going to be hard, and it was, and we drove away from the campus. And Lisa and I both looked at each other and said, we won't see him anymore every day. I'm not going to see him every day anymore. We're not going to be there when he has a crisis to, to intervene and, and take care. He's on his own now. And that was hard. He, in the last couple of years, Josh has rented a home with some other Christian guys from a ministry group called Chi Alpha. And they live right down in the, in the center of Dankytown. And Dankytown is the center of university student life. It's where all the kids gather. It's where the stores are, the restaurants, and different things. And there's been a major uptick in violent crime and theft in and around Dankytown over the last year. A lot of it's been part of the civil unrest that we have seen being played out in the streets of Minneapolis. But it's also because of the vulnerability of the younger student population. In fact, last fall, I personally witnessed a young lady being pushed to the ground and robbed in broad daylight right out in front of Josh's house. Just this past week, I received an alert text from the University of Minnesota Department of Public Safety listing recent and past events of violent crime in and around the campus. And as I was scrolling through the text, back to um, incidents that had happened within the last month or two, one particular incident popped out at me. And it was one that happened right at the end of Josh's Street, just a few feet away from his home. On March 30th, an adult male non-student was shot in a drive-by and pronounced deceased at the scene by law enforcement. When I asked Josh about this incident, he told me that he had just gotten off the bus. And he was standing there with a group of friends when he heard the shots being fired. He looked to his right and he saw a man laying in the street just feet from him. I asked him, how come you didn't tell your mom and dad that this happened? And he said, like a typical young adult, I'm fine. And I didn't want you and mom to worry about me. I didn't want you and mom to worry about me. I remember when we drove away from that campus, as I just shared, we're not going to see him anymore. We're not going to be there to protect him or to intervene in a crisis. But it was in that moment that Lisa and I both felt the comfort and the prompting from the Lord that said, but I see him. I see him. And I can't count the number of times I have felt I can't see my kids. And God says, I see them just like I see you. What does it mean to be seen? It means to be understood. It's easy to think that when you're going through a difficult time that nobody else understands what you're going through. That feeling of isolation creeps in, making you believe that you're all alone, that nobody else has ever experienced this before. But as followers of Christ, we know we, we don't have to feel this way. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly 
to the faith that we profess. Let us hold on to that faith that we profess. For we do not have a high, high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, no matter what we experience in life, that pain, that disappointment, depression, anxiousness, heartbreak, Jesus understands how you feel because he experienced those same things. He can empathize with you. What does it mean to be seen? It means to be free. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is when King David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. David, because he was king, had many people who looked up to him. But David only looked up to one. And that was his God. He was the audience of one. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16, that when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, he leaped and he danced before the Lord. Because he knew how much this thrilled God. Later in this chapter, in verse 22, David said, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I think this is an awesome passage because David wasn't concerned with how the people around him felt about him. He wasn't even concerned what the slave girls or his own wife felt about him. He was free. He was free. And I ask you the question, are you free like David was before the Lord? Or are, or are you always worrying about what other people think? If I do this, if I step into that, what will they think about me? I wonder how much freedom and joy you'd experience if you just got over yourself. And you quit worrying about what other people might think about you. And instead, you took a step of faith into the things that God has for you without concern. Knowing that what you're doing is before the Lord and not for anyone else. I will be even more undignified than this. See, when we truly come to the realization that we are seen and loved by God, we are free to dance. We are free to dance. And friends, I have to remind myself of this all the time. Whenever I feel that, that anxiousness or that, just that little pit in my stomach, you know, I, there's something I want to do. God's calling me to do it, but I'm like hesitant, holding back. I have to convince myself. I have to speak to myself and say, Lance, you are free. You are seen and loved by your God. Step out in faith. David danced. He danced before the Lord, and it was embarrassing to people around him. But David's dance was an expression on earth of God's joy in heaven. And that's all that mattered to David. What does it mean to be seen? It means to be strengthened. I remember hearing Dr. Anderson, our, our college president at North Central Bible College, share a, a message on this this passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, has become one of my favorite um, verses. It says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Why? 
so that he can catch us doing something wrong and punish us? No. <laughs> but it says that the Lord may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And I don't know if the thought of God seeing you makes you cringe. Like, God sees me? Oh, man. Or if it gives you courage. For Hagar, it gave her courage. And it should for you, too. Thankfully, Hagar's story doesn't end in despair. God was working behind the scenes of her life, just as he was working behind the scenes of my life, and just as he works behind the scenes of your life. As a matter of fact, Hagar emerges feeling loved, safe, understood, strengthened, and free. Acting in faith, she returns back to Abram and Sarai's house. Tensions seize. She receives all the assistance that she needs to safely carry and deliver her child. And for 14 years, there's peace in their home. And during that period of time, Abram builds a tight bond with Ishmael. He becomes, they become tight, father and son relationship. He circumcises Ishmael, ensuring that Ishmael bears the sign of God's covenant promise for generations to come. Abram is even content with Ishmael to carry forward God's promises. He even asked, I'm God, will you allow Ishmael to be my promised son? But a late and unexpected miracle takes place that complicates everything. And the story picks up five chapters later in Genesis 21. If you can flip over to there. In the, in the meantime, several key events take place. At the age of 99, God appears to Abram and makes a covenant with him. God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to the father of many. God again promises Abraham a heir through Sarai, renaming her Sarah. And that leads us to the second chapter of this story, Genesis 21, starting in verse 1. It says that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, because she was 90. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Another son means that Ishmael is no longer Abraham's heir. Hagar, again, loses rank. Ishmael is now a teenager, around 17 years of age, and, and going on in verse 8, it says that Isaac is newly weaned, so he's around three to four years old, two to three years old. Abraham, it says, throws this big feast for Isaac to celebrate his weaning, and it's at this party that Sarah looks and sees Ishmael over in the corner ridiculing 
and mocking Isaac and the occasion. The tensions that lie dormant between Sarah and Hagar suddenly erupt and resurface as a result of Ishmael's mocking. As a result, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, you need to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And he hesitantly concedes and sends them out into the desert. And God assures him that Hagar and Ishmael will be okay. We pick it back up in verses 15 through 15 and 16. It says, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Have you ever walked through a desert? The closest that I ever got to that was a 90-degree day trying to walk up the, what they call it, the Sleeping Bear Dunes in Traverse City, Michigan. But I once had a missionary um, who worked for us at Yolas tell me who, whose parents were missionaries in, in a region, in a desert region, and she told me that it's very difficult. She says that walking in the desert is not a fun experience unless you're riding downhill in a sled. So whether the desert is in the natural or things feel like a desert in your emotional or spiritual walk, to be in the desert is a difficult and exhausting place. And Hagar, Hagar has found herself in both a natural and emotional desert experience. Almost all of us as believers will experience a desert experience sometime in our faith journey. You may be in one now. A desert experience is a time in your life where you feel spiritually dry and fruitless. These experiences start innocently enough, maybe through an illness, loss of a job, loss of a loved one, a major change, and even hormonal changes can can bring on one of these desert experiences. And somewhere along the way, we lose our feeling of closeness with God, don't we? And we become disinterested in anything that has to do with the church, prayer, the Bible. We even make excuses in desert experiences to avoid our Christian friends. We shut people away. And like those who have suffered through or are suffering through desert experiences themselves, Hagar didn't choose her situation, but it was chosen for her. So when she was sent away by Abraham and forced to wander with her son in the desert, everything that she had come to depend upon for safety and sustenance of life, it was all taken away, and she gave up hope. Another thing that is necessary in a desert is adequate Hydration. You have to drink a lot of water, but not too much. And Hagar lacked hydration. Both her son and her were suffering from heat exhaustion and serious dehydration. And our text says that Hagar cried out to God, Let me not look on the death 
of my child. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And it was in this place of hopelessness and despair that God made himself known to Hagar. And God heard the voice, verse 17, of the, vo of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. Friends, I want you to take comfort this morning knowing that, in your, that your desert experience will one day pass. And God will meet you in it just as he did for Hagar and Ishmael. This is a time of testing. This is a time of trust. And God always shows up in those moments. I want to show you the rest of the I Am Invisible One night, a group of us gathered, and we were celebrating the return of a friend from England. Janice had just taken this fabulous trip, and she was going on and on about the hotel she stayed in. And I was sitting there looking around at the other women at the table. I'd put my makeup on in the car on the way there. I had on an old dress because it was the only thing clean, and I had my unwashed hair pulled up in a banana clip, and I was feeling pretty darn pathetic. And then Janice turned to me, and she said, I brought you this. <laughs> it was a book on the great cathedrals of Europe. I didn't understand. And then I read her inscription. She wrote, with admiration for the greatness of what you are building when no one sees. I got the book home and I'd like to tell you that I curled up with a cup of tea in my favorite chair and sat by the fire and looked at it. But I walked right past all the chaos going on in the kitchen. You ate the butterfinger I was saving! Right past the experiment my youngest son was conducting on the cat to my sanctuary. I locked the bathroom door and I sat down. And here is what amazed me. You can't name the names of the people who built the great cathedrals. Over and over again, looking at these mammoth works, you scan down to find the names, and it says, Builder, unknown, unknown, unknown. They completed things not knowing that anyone would notice. There's a story about one of the builders who was carving a tiny bird inside a beam that would be covered over by a roof. And someone came up to him and said, Why are you spending so much time on something no one will ever see? And it's reported that the builder replied, because God sees. They trusted that God saw everything. They gave their whole lives for a work, a mammoth work, they would never see finished. They showed up day after day. Some of these cathedrals took over a hundred years to build. That was more than one working man's lifetime. Day after day. And they made personal sacrifices for no credit. Showing up at a job 
they would never see finished, for a building their name would never be on. One writer even goes so far as to say no great cathedrals will ever be built again because so few people are willing to sacrifice to that degree. I closed the book and it was as if I heard God say, I see you. You are not invisible to me. No sacrifice is too small for me to notice. I see every cupcake baked, every sequin sewn on, and I smile over everyone. I see every tear of disappointment when things don't go the way you want them to go. But remember, you are building a great cathedral. It will not be finished in your lifetime, and sadly, you will never get to live there. But if you build it well, I will. Powerful. Moms, you're building cathedrals. Mandy, as a teacher, you're building cathedrals in that classroom. Kristen, you are building cathedrals on that campus through your investment in those ladies. You are building cathedrals. God sees your work, even though you feel like what you do is unseen. I asked this question this morning. What have you placed under a tree of defeat? Said Hagar placed her son under the bush and cried out and wept. What have you placed there? What has God called you to do that you placed under a tree of defeat? And he wants, to, wants you to know that he sees he sees that thing. He sees that thing. Will you stand with me this morning? I was woke up out of my sleep this morning. And I know that you probably experienced this before. It's like the sentence just kept going through my, through my mind. And I would doze back off, and I would wake up, and it would just be repeated. And it was pray over the women. Pray over the women. So I want to invite those who are moms, women who invest in children. As we've said, whether they're biological children of yours or not, we want you to come up this morning and I want the guys to gather around the ladies and we want to pray over you and let God just shower you with his presence this morning and reaffirm that he sees you. Can I invite you to come? And Caden, can you help me move this to the side so there's room up front? If you feel comfortable, ladies, why don't you just come on, come, come on up?
we not only acknowledge what you do is hard and difficult and oftentimes goes unseen, but we acknowledge that you are special. And I know that word sometimes like, oh, special. It's cliche. It's kind of like telling one of, Lisa telling one of our employees that she's proud of them. Oh, thank you. It's like something your uncle tells you. But as Matt said, the burden that you carry, the things that you do, the things that nobody else can do, it's a calling that God has given you. And we acknowledge that this morning. Can we just have the guys just come around? Maybe your spouse is standing up here, just come stand next to your spouse. Let's just pray over these ladies. Sometimes they have to sacrifice and put on the back burner things that they feel called to, gifts that God's given them because of the different seasons in life. And that can be very difficult. Yeah, ladies, why don't you just join hands with the, with the gal next to you. And let's just... Father, we just want to be obedient right now, Lord. You see this group of women in our church, these moms, these individuals who invest in other young people. And Lord, they're building cathedrals. They're building cathedrals. There's days when they want to throw in the towel because it's hard. But I pray that you would remind them from this day forward they're building cathedrals. They're not left out. They're not put aside. They're not less than. You have commissioned them and given them one of the most awesome responsibilities, and that's to fashion and form the next generation of Christian men and women. And Lord, they are doing a pretty good job at it. We have some of the best children and youth in our church because of these women, these moms, these teachers. Lord, I thank you that we are in a season right now where they've even stepped up and are rotating and investing in the lives of other people's children. Father, we pray for a Joshua generation of cathedrals to be brought up, Lord, that will take the land. We thank you for women who are women of God, who know their, their Savior, who know their word, and they're not afraid to stand for truth and conviction. Father, I pray that right now that you would give them all the spiritual enablement that they need to do the work that you've called them to do. And their moms, they spin many plates. They don't even just work in the home, but they work in the church. They work maybe in the, in the marketplace. 
They have a lot of responsibility. So I pray for those this morning who may be going through a dry experience, a desert experience. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, Lord, that you would show up to them, Lord. Lord, that you would call them out and that you would refine them in this time. And that you would strengthen them and embolden them. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with each of their kids as you were with Ishmael. And you said, the, the word says that you were with him and the boy grew up. I pray that their children will grow up and look to you because of their mom investment in their life. Lord, we pray blessing upon blessing over them. We pray, Father, for um, good works and good things to come. May they walk with a freedom. And may they say like David, I will be more, even more undignified than this. Because I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't even care what I think about myself. I love my Jesus. And I'm free because he sees me. He sees me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Let's sing this last song. Thanks, Alejandra, for picking out a song that I believe really speaks to, to women again as we close out the service. Then I'm going to come back up in just a moment. We're going to have a time of, of benediction prayer, and then we have a special treat for each of the ladies. Let's sing this song. I pray that you can see God waving at you this morning saying, I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. We've got crumble cookies um, for all the, the moms and, and adult women this morning. Let them go first. If there's any left over, then it's up for grabs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Mother's Day, and we thank you for a special day that it is. We thank you for all the women in our church. We bless them. We honor them. We pray the rest of their day is, is beautiful for them. And Lord, that they would enjoy their family, their friends, and just a time of relaxation. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We're going to kick back off our third week of our Holy Spirit series next Sunday. See you then. Jump in.